Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And today joining me is my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. We are delighted today to have Hillary McBride with us. If you haven't heard of her yet, she is a speaker, an author. She is the host of Other People's Problems. And she's the co-host of a second podcast called The Liturgist. We also want to say congratulations to Hillary because she just completed her PhD. Oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you. Dr. McBride. Hello. (laughs) So Hillary, we sometimes kick off this podcast by asking the question, if there were to be or when there is a movie made of your life, who or whom would you like to play you? Oh my gosh. What a, what an excruciating question, truly. You know what's, what I think about first when you ask that question is not necessarily who, who based on what they look like visually, but maybe like who based on what it feels like to be in a room with them. Like that feels more important to me than, than pretty much anything else. I think, um, and again, Oh gosh, do I know, do I know what it's like to be in the room with, with anybody who has a famous acting career? I'm not sure. I I would have to have to have more life experiences to say, but maybe that would be my criteria. If you were to ask me again, next time we talk, I might be able to come up with someone, but I'd want, I'd want it to be someone, um, yeah, who who experienced people a certain way and who people had a certain experience mm. of more than what they looked like. So I, I know that's kind of like a non-answer for you, but no, <laughs> no, looking at right no. now. it sounds very embodied almost, which is like I, right up your alleyway. Is mm-hmm. this like what? Not like this idea, but like let what is it? What is the actual experience that I get when when yeah. I think about or when I interact with this person? And that is nobody's ever answered that question that way. So that's phenomenal. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that um, I've worked really hard in my life to move away from appearance as a central focus of identity. Mm-hmm. And to me, experience feels like a more important aspect to being human than what we look like. I mean, that's part of it. It's part of the package. Yeah. It's part yeah. of like, you know, some some factors for recognition. But But truly, I think like, aside from what we look like, um, what feels more important to me in my life is is the way that I move in relational spaces mm-hmm. and how how I feel when I'm with people and how they feel when they're yeah. with me, that, that to me sticks out as a, as a really important feature mm. of my life. So I guess it's consistent then. Yeah. So saying that, what is something, if you could name one thing, what is something you hope people feel when they're with you? Um, I want people to feel connected to their own sense of goodness. Mm. I want people to feel at ease and to know that they don't have to be something other than who they really are to earn some affection from me or something. Mm. I think I want, I want people to know that they're loved and lovable. Mm-hmm. And I, I had started having a fear. It was probably within the last year. It was really strange. These, I was having lots of dreams related to it. And I don't know if it's um, based on a developmental stage or something existential that's going yeah. on for me, yeah. but 
probably like my, my biggest fear right now in my life is that the people who I love won't know that I love them. Hmm. And I don't know, I don't know where that comes from. I'm kind of working that out in my own life, but it does tell me like when I go to the bottom of that fear, it tells me what's really important, which is I want, I want people to know that they're loved. And I want, mm. I never want to miss an opportunity to say that mm. to the people who I really feel that about. So yeah. that's important mm. to me. I think I'm realizing. Do you think that it comes from a spot of trauma in your life where there was an interruption in a relationship? Uh, that somebody wasn't receiving that love in a way mm. that they could identify it? I think it's more for me, uh, the sense of the awareness of the shortness of life mm. and mm. not necessarily so much that I didn't have a chance to do that. Although I always want to, but more an awareness that like time is short and you never know, Yeah, you never know when, mm. when the last time you see someone is. And I think mm. um, I want, it's so important for me that, people in my life feel loved by me and I would never want for it to be on my end that they didn't know that. So I think maybe mm. more about like responsibility taking and for, I think for a lot of years I was caught up in like what was going on for me and not necessarily communicating to people that, that they mattered to me when they did. Mm. So maybe just a developmental yeah. thing. Wow. And that, that resonates so much even with Rachel Heldevin's past mm -hmm. and just I went to Evolving Faith this year and to hear mm. the tributes and the love for her, um, the love that was uh, that I'm listening to podcasts and hearing people talk about the experience of her funeral. And it often makes me think of that same thing of like, am I loving people well in the now? And do they know that? And do they feel that? Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious though, when we become enveloped and if we can find, you know, how do we find a balance between doing that in the fear that's kind of sitting on the other mm -hmm. side of that, mm -hmm. that it seems like, because then if we're loving people well, part of loving people well is presenting ourselves in wholeness and loving ourselves. And, and I know you know this. And so if we're so afraid of that, does that take away from being an authentic relationship with somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It could be, I, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I'm wondering, this is what comes up for me with your question. Wondering if the fear then eclipses the ability to be present and have that connection. Yes, and, exactly, and so I think about yes. fear not on a, on an off on switch, but more on a gradient a fear on a continuum and maybe fear being not mm. even necessarily something that's like ooh, spooking us, but maybe more an existential marker of value. Um, like, I think that there are fears that are like, oh, I got spooked, boo, you know, by a scary movie. And then yep. there are fears that are more, um, pointers to aches, longings, wantings, um, things that were missed, things that you hope for. And I think it's good to feel, I don't want to say afraid, like scared, but I think it's good to have a healthy dose of fear about not walking in our values. And for me, it's less a fear that feels consuming and more just, again, this, I think my body telling me this is important to you. Pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. Make sure that when you feel that you love someone that you tell them so they don't ever have to guess. Going back to mm -hmm. that embodiment piece mm -hmm. of really being attuned yeah. to what's happening yeah. in the connection. So if you can, I know you have a new book that's going to come out yeah. in the next year or yeah. so. 
So, you know, I don't know where you're at in that mm-hmm. process, but can you tell us a little bit oh, about that book that's coming to. out? You're I would love to. It, it feels like one of the more important things I feel like I'll ever do, ever do in my professional life. Like I'm really connected mm-hmm. to what the heartbeat of it is. So it's called Embodied. And our working subtitle right now is Why What We Think, Feel, and Do About Our Body Matters for Just About Everything. Mm-hmm. And it's really meant to be this kind of writing, um, as in reorienting, not script, but a writing of the story and relationship we've had with our bodies that I think leads us to be in tension with ourselves. So many of us have grown up in faith contexts where we were told the flesh, the body is bad. That's where sin is. That's where pain is. That's where death is. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, that was a story that was around long before Christian scriptures and the writings of Paul were ever around. That was a story that actually came from Plato a long time ago in Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it's informed pretty much everything about how we see the world and what we value and why we disconnect from ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the book is really about these stories that have kept us in disconnection from ourselves. And by putting that together, putting our relationship with ourselves back together matters for our spirituality, for our creativity, for our sexuality, for our, uh, even for our politics. Um, it, why it matters related to trauma, pain, aging, body image, like kind of all Mm -hmm. of these intersections of pain where most of us say, but yeah, but this is a reason why my body isn't good because of this and, and me trying to, Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, invite us into maybe a more loving, compassionate relationship with our physicality to perhaps to even to seem, and maybe this is even the thesis of the Mm -hmm. book that, that there is um, something sacred about our flesh. Not only is our flesh um, not bad, but it is in fact the very most beautiful, good thing about our existence. Mm, which, yeah, you go to motherhood mm. and you think about the flesh and you think about that connection. Well, not even motherhood, just human mm. connection in yeah. general. When you literally touch each other, there's a response in our bodies and all parts of our bodies. And, you know, that may be good or bad, depending on what your body remembers Mm -hmm. about touch. But there's also, this is silly, but so my husband and I, we're both really hot sleepers, but we will touch feet. (laughs) And that is, but it's literally, I know that I'm like the touch of Mm -hmm. each other is, it's Mm -hmm. enough, you know, and I think that speaks to how intricate our bodies are about body. Our bodies remember whether touch is good or not good. Our bodies carry memory. And the reason our body Mm. reacts, reacts to what we like, what we don't like is because our body's storing what it's like to be us through our whole life. But even though we Mm -hmm. forget intellectually, the kind of memory that's stored in our body can't be forgotten. That's so Mm. interesting because I'm, um, in, in the spaces that I get to occupy and the work that I get to do, the, one of the concepts that I'm exploring right now is this notion of generational trauma mm-hmm. and having a lot of robust conversations around that and as it relates to race. And so mm-hmm. when you are talking about being in relationship with others and being in relationship around uh, those that uh, sort of there's this interchange that makes you feel good. Often in this reconciliation work, though, those conversations don't feel good. And I've noticed Mm -hmm. that a product of whiteness is to really get defensive Mm -hmm. because there's this notion of I'm a bad person if 
I exhibit a racist behavior or a racist mm-hmm. thought. And it makes it really hard to have that conversation and bridge that relationality across that. What What are your, some of your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a specific question, but I figure let's riff on that a little bit. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a problem when we actually come down to it. It's an embodiment problem for white people. So white people in whiteness have often had the luxury of leaving their bodies where when trauma is constantly perpetrated against you based on your body, you can't leave your body in the same way. So I would say that disembodiment shows up in Mm -hmm. communities where they have had the liberty and the privilege of being intellectualized Mm -hmm. and you haven't been excluded from spaces based on your body. So Mm -hmm. there is, there's a disembodiment problem that's happening, but when we're disembodied, we don't really know how to feel and pay attention to our feelings. We haven't been shown how to stay with them. We haven't been shown how to own them, how to move through them. And so what happens when somebody else is feeling a lot, like when people in a community of color are saying, this is not okay, this white supremacist behavior, the the racist systemic Mm -hmm. issues that are ongoing today are not okay. And there's anger and there's rage and there is passion and there is pain. If you don't know how to feel your own feelings, it's going to be very uncomfortable for you to be with someone who knows how to feel theirs. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. what we end up doing is we end up shutting down the other person in order to make Mm -hmm. their feelings go away. Because what's happening is it's activating our own and we don't know how to feel them, which I think Mm -hmm. is a body problem. It's because emotion is in the body. Emotion is not a cognitive process. It's an embodied process with a physiological mm-hmm. response. So nope. if a, a white woman is si- sitting across from a, a woman of color who's saying, you're silencing me again, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the white woman is so uncomfortable that she's saying, well, you can't talk to me like that. And then the woman of color comes back at her and says, you're tone policing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the white woman goes yeah. like, oh shit, uh, right? Is it going to be easier to be like, wow, I am noticing something in myself and I'm feeling all of these reactions. Or is it going to be easier to be like, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your anger, your race, you know, aggression, your rage is too much for me. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, it is problematic for us to hold space with people who have lots of emotion. If we don't know how to feel our own. Because our tendency, as I said, is to make another person's feeling go away just because we don't know how to actually deal with it, which is not the other person's Mm -hmm. problem. That's our responsibility. So what I found is that the more capable I am of holding my own shame, guilt, frustration, sadness, anger, any of it, it becomes so much easier to be in a space with someone who has lots of feelings and to go, whoa, tell me more. What else did you see? That's Mm -hmm. awful. That needs to change. Okay. I'm going to start looking at my behavior because I don't need to make the uncomfortable feelings go away. And I can understand that your rage is not necessarily about me as an individual. And so I can hold it. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that side of things to your question, Tommy. But the other side that I wanted to, to mention is we have got so much research in the field of epigenetics that teaches us now how certain stressors and traumatic 
content material triggers change genetic material through time and that those changes are sustained over time. So what we know from studies, I think this is a 2012 study, um, that these mice were shocked when they were exposed to the smell of cherry blossoms. And I'll come back to race in just a second. Hang in there with me. These mice are shocked. <laughs> poor, poor mice. They get shocked. They're exposed to cherry blossoms, and they—that cycle of conditioning happens so much that that's pretty soon the mice smell cherry blossom scent and they just freak out right? because that has gotten knit into their their nervous system. What we found is that three generations down, without ever being exposed to the shock. The grandbaby mice also responded with fear to the cherry blossom smell just from smelling mm. it because an epigenetic change had occurred in the grandparents such that those nervous system, those gene responses had associated danger with cherry blossom smell and that got written, that had gotten written into their DNA. So mm. if we think about that as extending beyond mice to race, it would make yep. a lot of sense that in a context, in a sociocultural context and political framework where mm -hmm. people of color had been systemically devalued, erased, taken away from culture, community, yeah. language, all sorts of things, that their body would associate white people or certain yeah. communities or systems with danger. And then it would make a lot of sense when they see me that they would also notice themselves feeling angry. And it would have nothing necessarily to do with me, although I have to take personal responsibility for how I prop up white supremacist structures. But it could be that their bodies are like, whoa, I'm done being in white spaces. I'm done being in communities where I'm not allowed yes. to exist and have a voice. And that would have nothing to do with me being a bad person, but me representing a system that had consistently oppress them. So I look at it from both sides. White people have been disconnected from their bodies, don't know how to hold feeling, don't know how to hold space for a narrative that isn't their own because it's uncomfortable. That's the work of people in the white community. But then also like, wow, it makes so much sense that, that people in communities of color or any other marginalized identity would have physiological reactions in being with spaces where people in charge and people who are visible represent the oppressor that their ancestors were kept under the thumb of. Like it makes a lot of sense that there is anger, it makes a lot of sense that there's rage based on intergenerational trauma Hot for sure. Damn. <laughs> land for you? I mean, cause I just want to honor your question and know that I don't, I get to be an expert on some things, but not on the lived yeah. experience of being a person in the community of color. Like, how does that feel um, hearing me say all of that? Being in my body right now, to hearing all that, it brings up a lot of emotion. Um, it mm. makes me think about my community as a black person and communities of color and their relationship to the police. Mm. Um, it makes me think about our relationship to the earth, to the ground. Mm -hmm. I just saw Harriet uh, a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the th messages that was portrayed in it was this spiritual connection to the earth, to cultivating the earth, which for me is a, a, a deeply spiritual uh, 
biblical scriptural practice. Um, but I also live with the contention of, well, I don't want to be my body to, to be relegated to, uh, having to cultivate the ground per se. Um, because of the history of what I was, uh, mm-hmm. our, our, our people was expected to do. Um, and then I think about even today, trauma is happening in our relationship with, with law, law enforcement. Um, when we look at kids being put in cages yeah. <laughs> on the border. And so it is this overwhelming hope, but, all, but currently also mm-hmm. this overwhelming sadness that we are still yes. perpetuating. Yes. Uh, this generational trauma that will take so long to continue to heal. Um, And I'm just asking myself the question, what is it? Mm -hmm. How can I show up um, to heal? I know there's a part in there for me, but also how can I walk alongside my white brothers and sisters um, in a a way where we both own our parts to this? Yeah. 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 Well, to your point, like there's not only trauma that's happened historically, but it's ongoing, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we heal the things that happened to our ancestors like generations ago? That's where, that's where we have to do our work as individuals. But man, when the trauma is still ongoing, that's like, think, let's go back to the mice and the cherry blossom smell. It's like, you know, the original mice are shocked and the cherry blossoms are connected to that. And there's all this fear around the cherry blossoms. But what happens if the second generation, right? Their babies are also shocked and exposed to the Mm. smell of, I mean, whatever, trees, right? Like cedar. So you've got like multiple traumas that keep happening and the original traumas haven't been healed. There's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, but man, I feel more hopeful than ever because I think that the voices of people of color, the voices of people in so many different marginalized identities are speaking up and there is work being done that is, I'm hoping, shifting discourse on a broader scale. But I think more than ever, there are people who are seeking therapy to talk about their own Mm -hmm. racial trauma. And so they're getting a chance to work it through. So yes, systemic things need to change, but, but there are more, the more information we have, the more resources available, the more that people can do their individual work to feel free in their own lives. And so I feel really hopeful about that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it just puts, it explains so much my reaction. Um, we actually road trips from Charlotte to Denver, a 30 hour road trip. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. No joke. And Dang. I got pulled over at 3 a.m. Uh, on the highway wow. and um, in Kansas, of, of all places, in mm-hmm. the middle of nowhere. It was just me and my partner in the car. Um, and I immediately went back to the training that I had from my mother of keep your hands on the steering wheel. Uh, um, I, re- I immediately, okay. I had, uh, this water bottle. It was caught in the side of the door okay. and, um, as he asked me to step out of the car. And so I'm already on edge here and I'm like, why do I have to step out of the car? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and I'm telling him, yeah. uh, all right, I have a water bottle in the side of my door and it's going to fall out. And he goes, you can pick it up. And the only thing in my mind was if I pick it up, he's going to think that I'm going for a gun. So I said, I'll wait till after we're done. Um, that'll make me more comfortable. It'll make me feel safer in this experience. Um, and so 
the the interaction the police officer was incredibly polite he was incredibly nice um but that fear that paralyzing fear of just one wrong move and i might not be here um Mm -hmm. yeah high consequences And how, when we are not aware of how we participate in the system, we continue to perpetuate systems that produce these high consequence situations. Mm-hmm. And so I often tell people that, you know, they, they come to me in, with the angry black woman trope, um, and they just don't understand that certain situations uh, that black women, black men, people of color are in, there are of where, where there's no consequence perhaps to a white person in that situation. There's a high stakes situation and it's not just with the police, but with, think about education, think about healthcare. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's profound. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you for sharing that, Tommy. I'm sorry that, oh my gosh, for no fault of your own, there is more fear. Yeah. yeah in your life that there should be. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. The saving grace is that I get to do this work with some really amazing people and I get to heal. And as I heal and the people around me heal, there's this collective healing together. And so I'm convinced that even though there is fear um, there as we push through it, as I heal, my healing is tied to your healing as we have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. And so I committed to openly and honestly sharing and, and stepping into that authenticity and not apologizing for who I am or my experiences or my past because it is of benefit to somebody. That's right. Yeah. The world mm-hmm. is better when you are fully mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So to <laughs> that was How are you a feeling conversation. Becca? I don't. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, where are we gonna go from there? Um, how am I feeling? Um, it hurts me, um, and as your friend, it scares me. It, it scares me in general for the people of color population. But when you have a personal relationship mm-hmm. with somebody who is very dear, just two things. It makes me terrified for you. And then it makes my justice piece of my body come out. And mm-hmm. honestly, I just kind of feel like, fuck that. Yeah. We're going to figure this out and we're going to do something about it. It makes my, my social to my eight part come out like flare. And as white people, we have to start shifting the narrative. And it, part mm-hmm. of that means supporting black voices and so that black voices are heard more and more and more. And it stops being this one off thing of here's one black voice over here and here's one black voice over there, that it is a multitude of voices that are constantly speaking and we're constantly learning. And I think the key is, is it's learning and it's listening. And when we feel guilt, let us feel it and mm. let it leave our yeah. body and yeah. let us keep learning. I, I think um, another piece to that, though, is we have like, I appreciate you, Becca, that you've looked around your circle and seen who is absent mm-hmm. from it and have actively worked to cultivate relationship because being in relationship with a person, it 
changes you. Mm-hmm. Um, being in close proximity to something, it has no choice but to affect your being and your internal being. And so often I hear white people go, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but that does not mean you're not racist. And how many black friends do you have? I'm not looking for your token one black friend mm-hmm. because we're not a monolith because mm-hmm. my experience is my experience. Um, but there's mm-hmm. multiple ways to experience blackness. And we have a, we definitely have the collective trauma, but then on the individual level. And so that's why it's so important to always be interrogating our circle and our friend groups to see who's also speaking into our lives and who are we encircling, who are, who are we giving our support to, who are we having at the dinner table? Um, because those things change you and cause you to really mm-hmm. question yeah. deeply and internally. Am, am I propping up the system or am I breaking it down? Mm-hmm. Well, and Hillary, to go back to the mice, um, being living in the United States and Western culture, and many mm-hmm. white people have descended um, from those who fought in the Civil War, those who ex- existed in times of slavery. Many people have ancestors that had slaves. And I truly believe, I, I can't sit here and say that I'm not racist. And the reason I say that is because I was raised in a culture of whiteness and there are things that are ingrained in my way of being and the way my brain processes things that I am still yet yeah. to discover. That path, that way is racist. And that is not a pity me. That is just something that it's an awareness to have. An awareness to have to know mm-hmm. that we have to consciously be examining how we look at things. And also the fact that when we have a bad day, you know this very well, when you have a bad day, you slip back into old patterns and it's being willing to bring ourselves, it's being willing to live in an awareness. And that just, it takes intentionality. we could extend this like if the, if this feels like an uncomfortable conversation we could talk about the awareness on all sorts of levels to help us see like oh racial awareness isn't that different we're just programmed particularly those of us in, in the white community we're just programmed to feel resistant to it in some way but it's the task of adulthood to understand where we've mm-hmm. come from as it informs why we feel the way we do in the present moment so that we can do things different moving forward like there's, there's no difference when it comes to racial injustice, but the systems around us make privilege invisible to us. So our ableism, right? Our sexism, our homophobia, our racism, we are invisible to it because when we have privilege in some way, but in the same way that I would do with anybody sitting in my therapy office, when we're doing appointments together, we're trying to bring from the unconscious to the conscious, the things that dictate our everyday mm-hmm right? For mm. the, the Carl Jung quote that I love so much is, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. But the work mm-hmm. is to make conscious these things that are governing our every, every move without us knowing it. And then giving us, because they're conscious, giving us a choice about them. 
And that mm-hmm. means going back, I would say, to to the experiences of our family and maybe even our parents' parents to look at what did they live through? What did they need to learn how to do to survive? And how is that way, how is that in some way shaped the way I was parented? How has that shaped the way mm-hmm. that I move through the world? And are there things that worked for them that don't work for me anymore? Or there are things that worked for them that I don't want to continue anymore? It could be um, a kind of bigotry. It could also be a kind of fear. And then mm. I think we also have to look at that individual lineage in the in the context of what's happening socially and politically. There might be some things that our family and our parents and our grandparents needed to do, like be afraid of police, be afraid of people mm. in the authority. That it's not it's not time yet to not give up because not being afraid means you're not going to be cautious about how where you put your hands when you're pulled over on the side of the road, and that could be the difference between life or death. So we, in making all of these things conscious, then we get to decide, did the old way of being kind of, did it expire on itself or do I still need some of those ideas? Do I need some of those ways of coping? Do I need some of those tools? Do I need some of those hypervigilances in order to stay survive? But what's sad for me is that uh, most people go to therapy, particularly we'll just, I'll talk about white people for a moment. Uh, white people who, who go to therapy are used to looking inward and asking, how did what came from my parents inform who I am and what doesn't work for me anymore? And I think that we get to, it's our right and our responsibility to look at how mm. whiteness yeah. is part of that. White mm-hmm. people are very good yeah. at being individualistic in terms of what is it that is affecting me. I don't necessarily see that extend all the time on a whole in a general level to the collective and how it affects the collective. I see this in conversations surrounding deconstruction even to where it stops right at faith deconstruction, but it, then it doesn't extend to the social deconstruction of how we view our lives and realities and what needs right. to, what serves right. us, what doesn't, what do we need to release and let go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're so right. And it's, that's one of the problems of, I would say, psychotherapy as it was created is it's an, it's an androcentric kind of white supremacist endeavor to do psychotherapy because Mm -hmm. it highlights um, the individual in a way that communities who haven't had the luxury of being an individual for survival reasons haven't had a chance to to be a part of. I would say it's been problematic historically how psychotherapy has gone about trying to engage in change because it... um, the idea of the individual is really a, a post-colonial idea that that's, mm-hmm. that's not actually, when we look at what's going on, how the world works, there's no such thing as an individual. I mean, we have mm-hmm. unique identities, but even when we look at brain formation, my brain develops. The reason I think the way that I think, the reason I call myself Hillary is because other people gave me that name. Like every part of me is infused into relationship and community. So if psychotherapy is not extending to community change, I think it is continuing to be a white supremacist endeavor. That's interesting. So is there research then, say I'm referring a person of color to therapy, is there a particular therapy that would benefit them more so than another? And I may not be asking that question the right way, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like 
You know, what's really interesting politically is that the conversation about race in Canada is a lot mm. different than the conversation about race in the States that I've noticed mm. that there are, and this has been such an important and painful learning point for me, but because I speak so much in the States, when I come back to Canada, I'll often have the same kind of dialogue with people and they'll go, no, 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 no. We're not, like you said earlier, Tommy, we're not a monolith. Like what we need in this community is different than maybe what they need in Austin, maybe what they need in LA, than maybe what they need in North Carolina and New York. Like you, you cannot assume as a white person that everywhere you go, that all people of color are going to need or appreciate or want the same kind of response from you. And that has been a big piece of awakening for me. But what I have, what I found is just the most helpful thing. And it is not effective or sorry, not efficient time-wise, but is to get on the phone with someone and be like, are you willing to talk about white supremacy? Are you willing to bring race into the room? What is your What are your thoughts on on how race impacts mental health and racial experiences as they're constructed socially? How they impact mental health? And uh, there are going to be some people who are like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about, and those are probably not the best people to do work with, <laughs> right? Um, I think that there are certain kinds of therapy that are more effective for different presenting problems. Like there are some kinds of therapy that you want to use for trauma. And there are some kinds of therapy that you want to use for family and intergenerational stuff. There's some kinds of therapy that address spirituality versus behavior more. So it really depends on the presenting issue. That's kind of our clinical lang language for like, what are you bringing to therapy? But at the very heart of what is therapeutic about therapy is the relationship. And the research time and time and time again has told us that it doesn't matter what approach you use. If you don't feel serene, heard, and valued by your therapist, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what yes. they do. So I would say if you feel like you can talk about race, if that's a really important part of what's going on for you in your mental health, then that is more important than any kind of approach they would use. And you're probably not mm -hmm. going to find that out mm -hmm. unless you ask someone or unless they explicitly state it on a website or in a kind of a clinical statement somewhere. Mm -hmm. I've even found too, even the website can say, you know, list all the things and it can seem to match, but you get in the room and the energy with that person, you know, I've gone and had one session and I've been like, no, that's not it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's no, it doesn't speak to their knowledge or their, it's just yeah. there's a relational. And my husband is a therapist as well. He's mm. a marriage and family therapist. Mm. And so He's talked about that a lot. They're just people that it just, you get further and you do harder and deeper work because there's this connection. And yeah. I'm such a big advocate of telling people, don't stay with a therapist just because you feel oh, obligated no, no, no. or, you know, please, like therapists are people too. We have to take the pedestal mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to find someone, you're a sensing person. It's so important to find someone that energy, it's it's comfortable. You're going to go to some places mm -hmm. that are deep and you don't want to be in a place mm -hmm. where you Absolutely. feel scared yeah. to share. And it got so serious. <laughs> but I, I, there, there was good work that happened here <laughs> and I am so grateful. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Hillary, thank you mm, for spending time with us this mm. evening. And can you share a little bit about how people can find you and reach you if they don't know already? Of course, yes. Uh, so some great places to find me are online, uh, Uh That's my website. And I often list speaking engagements there 
so you can kind of keep tabs on where I'm going and what's happening. Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride, Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. Those are good places to find stuff that I'm thinking and, and what's going on for me. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Other People's Problems, which is a podcast I do with CBC, which is kind of like Canada's NPR and it's a it's a mm. podcast where we, with consent from my clients, put microphones into my sessions. So if you've ever wondered what therapy is like and you mm-hmm. you are wondering if it's like how it looks on TV, which is big surprise here, not what? usually the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you can listen to me do therapy with people and hear a, a little bit of information about what happens for us in therapy, what happens when we're hurt, what happens when we change, how do we change, what does healing look like? Uh, and then the Liturgist podcast. And I've got some really exciting new projects that are coming out 2020. And so mm-hmm. keep your eyes peeled on my social media for that. I cannot wait, but I am, I've got, I've got to keep my lips sealed for now. So it'll be big, <laughs> exciting to release information, but lots coming your way. Yay. Mm-hmm. And friends, um, not only is Hillary working on a new book, but some of the events coming up for Hillary, she will be in Oklahoma in April. Um, with Moms Who Work, the Yellow Conference in August. And I know a lot of our listeners, this is, she will be speaking at Evolving Faith in October. And that is very exciting. So grateful for the existence of Evolving Faith and Mm -hmm. people like yourself, Hillary, who are willing to go and speak into those spaces. Mm. Thank you for oh, your time. You're so welcome. Being willing to do that. I'm really excited about that that particular speaking event because I'll be doing a workshop. Um, we're just figuring out what it will be, but it won't just be me talking at people, but it will be a chance to get into experiencing some things, doing some mm-hmm. doing some practices, probably body related, probably um, really experiential. So not just ideas, mm-hmm. but really living the things that I usually talk about. So I'm I'm really excited about all that stuff coming up. It's going to be good. Awesome. Well, Hillary, thank you again for joining us. Oh, such a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you for your your stimulating conversation, thought, open, mm. and authentic listening. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate mm. our time together. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at beccaepley.com.